Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, 10 points to consider when it comes to end times theology. Uh, Ken, this is one of those uh, evergreen topics, so to speak. People are always interested in eschatology and end times, and it's often a, an event in the news or many events in the news that brings this topic to people's attention, and you want to help clarify some matters when it comes to thinking about eschatology. That, that's correct. I uh, I find eschatology uh, fascinating, like many people do. Uh, I'm also, though, very interested in the apologetic implications, and what I mean by that is I think when eschatology is done poorly or it, maybe in an unbiblical manner, it creates apologetic problems for people who are possibly considering the faith. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the principles that I wrote about in a little book uh, that came out some time ago, I think 2013, titled Christian Endgame with the subtitle Careful Thinking About End Times. So yeah, we want to spend a little time talking about maybe some basic principles that go should go into are thinking about uh, eschatology. And uh, eschatology is a Greek word. Eschatos means last. So the study of the last things or the end times, that's, that's the direction we're going to go. Great. All right, Ken, I appreciate that. And uh, I've got uh, my ears attuned. Very good. Our, our first point relates uh, directly to my comment about uh, the need to do uh, eschatology in a in a very careful and deliberate and biblically oriented way. So my first point is that irresponsible approaches to eschatology create apologetic problems for the church. Um, let me mention, for example, names like William Miller in the 19th century. William Miller was a New England Baptist minister predicted that uh, October 22nd, 1844, the Lord would return, his second coming. Uh, the saying was, uh, the day came, but the Lord didn't. Mm. And uh, that created all kinds of challenges. By the way, out of that movement, Joe, came the Seventh-day Adventists. Um, also, in the 19th century, Jehovah's Witnesses came into existence to some degree out of eschatology. So, these issues are important to Christians. Obviously, the Bible talks a lot about the second coming, uh, and that's a that's a creedal issue. Uh, in our creeds, we talk about the Lord will return and how his kingdom will never end. Uh, of course, questions like the millennium and the rapture and the timing and all those issues are not creedal issues, but uh, the second coming is a, a very important one. But I think it it illustrates, Joe, that uh, there's a tendency to engage in speculation, and um, you can do it. You can do it improperly. And uh, William Miller, I, I could also mention Harold Camping, who uh, predicted this, the Lord's second coming twice, both in 1994 and then in 2011. By the way, Camping um, at one time was uh, pretty careful, thoughtful. A uh, Christian Bible teacher had a Reformed background, but went off the deep end. And um, 
I could mention other names that may even be more uh, recognizable who have made similar mistakes. So um, I think this first issue here is that when you speculate and when you have a position of prominence, non-Christians pick this up, and particularly people who are highly skeptical who are, or who would like to show Christianity to be false, they say, look, uh, it's, they don't say, well, that's the problem that this particular evangelist or minister had. They say, well, obviously the Bible isn't true. Uh, and so that's really largely my interest in eschatology. I want to, I, I, I hold tentatively to my own eschatological views because I know this is an area where Christians disagree. I know that um, uh, it's a, it's a challenging area, um, but I get a little concerned when when people uh, talk in terms that cause consternation for non-Christian folk. And that leads us right into my second point, excessive speculation and date setting. They're just simply and patently unbiblical practices. Nobody should be setting dates. Um, here's John Jefferson Davis, who wrote a little handbook entitled Handbook of Bible Texts. I'm very fond of it. Whenever I study the Bible, uh, whenever I give a presentation, based upon scripture, I always, uh, that's probably the first book that I look to. Uh, Davis, interestingly enough, is a post-millennialist, so we'll talk with talk about him in one of his books at a later point, but here is a, uh, a passage in his book, uh, the basic handbook of basic Bible texts. He says, all attempts to set dates for the second coming are contrary to, to the clear teaching of scripture, hmm. um, and yet people do it. Um, again, leading evangelical uh, pastors uh, have done it, not just Miller in the 19th century and Harold Camping in the 20th and 21st century, but it, it happens uh, frequently. And of course, uh, I think it's important to go back to Jesus' statement in Matthew 24, 36. The Lord Jesus says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Um, so we we need to be very careful about these kinds of things. Um, could I say that I don't think we police our ranks well? Hmm. Um, I think it's important uh if I can speak broadly to the evangelical Protestant movement, I think it's important that we do uh, convey to people that there's a certain approach to, to prophecy um, that you don't want to engage in. But I've seen people do it time and again, and they still seem to have prominent ministries. So here's a, here's a couple points that I'm going to draw out of this question of speculation, excessive speculation. My first one is that Jesus, through his human nature, of course, said he didn't know the timing of his, his second coming. Uh, you can look at Matthew 24, 36. You can look at Luke 13, 32. Of course, I believe Jesus in his divine nature knew all things, but Jesus in his public ministry said he didn't know the timing. If uh, I think that should uh, bear on us as as we read through Scripture, 
I would also point out, uh, based on 2 Peter 3.8, that God's timetable is often different than that of human beings. You know, this passage talks about a day being a thousand years. Um, you know, I, I remember talking to my parents who were of the World War II generation, and they were evangelicals uh, growing up in West Virginia. Uh, by the way, the church they attended had a connection to the William Miller movement. Hmm. Uh, it, was, it was called a Christian Advent church. That's not a Seventh-day Adventist church, uh, although it has similar beliefs in terms of looking to eschatology and things like that, but it's not, it's not Sabbatarian. Uh, it doesn't keep Sunday. Uh, but I, re I remember talking with my parents. Um, what was it like to be a Christian in light of World War II? Um, you know, looking at the world scene, uh, they could very easily be tempted to think, wow, uh, these seem like the very things that the Bible mentions. But Joe, there have been many times in church history where Christianity looked bleak. Um, one of my favorite Christian thinkers, of course, is St. Augustine. And when he died, uh, civilization was coming apart. The Roman mm. Empire was civilization. And it had been sacked in 410 by the barbarians when Augustine was on his deathbed. He could see and smell uh, the, the barbarians burning his city of Hippo. So there have been many times where Christianity has looked very bleak. Um, I would think my parents had every good reason to think the Lord was going to come. So we have to be careful um, about how we adjudicate through these things. And, and I don't want to convey, in being critical of sometimes the way eschatology is done, I don't want to in any way convey the idea, Joe, that eschatology is unimportant. Now, one scholar has said, and I, I probably should count it, but one biblical scholar I read uh, when I was writing my own book on this topic, he said there are more references in the New Testament the second, to the second coming than there are to uh, the atonement. Now, I haven't counted them, but I know this scholar is a pretty careful guy. And I do know there are a lot of references. Paul, the apostle, is especially fond of talking about the, the blessed hope. So this is in no way to convey it's unimportant, but it has to be, I think, done very carefully. Now, a third implication of this excessive specula speculation, that the signs of the time spoken of in Scripture do not remove the fact that the event, that is the Lord, the timing of the Lord's coming, uh, will it'll still be a surprise to all people. Um, I'm basing that on Matthew 24, 44, that um, this is in the this is in the will of uh, our sovereign Father in heaven, and uh, I think we need to be deliberate. We need to be cautious. We need to be careful. Now, I also will say this, and and now I'm going to get some people who are going to disagree with me, but that's okay. Uh, living, I'm, go I'm going to make this case that living near the chronological end of the world offers no insight into the actual timing of the events. That is the biblical statement that says that one cannot know the day and the hour does not necessarily mean that one can know the month and the year. 
I think that's still speculating. Um, I Again, I think that there are a lot of other important reasons why this is important. And I'm going to I'm going to lead out some of those when we make a little further way down our, our 10 points. But one more point here about the speculation uh, kind of element. Uh, the term last days, Joe, can refer to the entire period between Christ's first and second coming. It can, it can appeal to that entire period. Uh, so I know that there is uh, much delight in uh, the idea of seeing the Lord come in our lifetime. Um, I can only think how extraordinary it will be uh, in my mind. And, and this is a point that I, I would like to talk more about in the next couple shows. Uh, Joe, if you, think about, if you think about the Christian worldview, one way of thinking of the Christian worldview is that it is a succession of four central biblical events, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So again, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Now, one of the things that leads me tentatively to the amillennial position, and, and again, it's tentative. I could be wrong. I uh, I think the apocalyptic literature in the Bible is challenging to interpret. There are good, thoughtful, careful scholars on all sides of the issue. So I, I hold my views tentatively and respectfully. I try never to misrepresent views. I try to present them uh, in the best possible manner that I can. But one of the reasons that leads me to a uh, to be sympathetic to amillennialism is this. I see the second coming as consummation, not an extended session of redemption. And that's why uh, if you think of the Christian worldview, again, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, I see the second coming as Christ coming in glory, which will then... Uh, we'll see all of these great events following the, the resurrection, the judgment, uh, the new creation, uh, etc. And so I think one of the appealing elements of the amillennial view, and, and again, we'll talk about all the views, they all have strengths and weaknesses. I, I have friends who hold all of these views, uh, and they're, I don't I don't know that any one of them is any more devoted to Christ or to, to Christian, uh, scholarship of scripture more than the others. But for me, uh, that idea of uh, the second coming being part of the consummation of the ages, not an extension of the kingdom, where let's say in a premillennial context, you would have Christ return, set up a literal reign. There would still be opposition to the gospel, and that would be eliminated at the end of the millennium. We'll come back to that, though. Then and again, postmillennialists I think have strong points. Premillennialists, either historical or dispensational, uh, they make points. Now, I, I want to add to that. Every person. Now, this this is uh, this is again relating to that uh, second point about speculation. Every person who has made a prediction about the second coming has been dead wrong. 
and has given reason for non-believers to question the truth of the Christian faith. So I'm going to make a prediction. The next person to predict a date will also be wrong. Hmm. And that's that's where I think apologetics comes to bear. <clears throat> you know, um, I, I, I'm thinking of a statement by St. Augustine. He said something along these lines. Um, now, there wasn't a, a thoroughgoing scientific enterprise during his age, but there were people studying nature and uh, trying to advance technology and things of that nature. And he said that, uh, you know, he always regretted when uh, maybe a Christian would would speak um, without a lot of knowledge uh, uh, about the scientific world and uh, maybe imply something uh, that the Bible teaches about it in, a, in an erroneous manner. Um, I would simply say that when we don't do apologetics well, when there is an excessive speculation, we can, we can create doubt in the minds of people. And I think one of, the, one of the very best traits you can have if you want to share your faith, if you want to be attractive to non-Christians, and that is to be careful with truth, uh, to be deliberate. Uh, I think I, I think it's true that a non-Christian may look, Joe, at you or me and say, do I want to be like them? Um, well, uh, I, I think sometimes we can, uh, we can convey a sloppiness. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I, I don't think there's any a bad intention at all. I'm excited to be, I'd love to see the Lord come in my lifetime, mm -hmm. uh, but we have to be careful. Any thoughts about that topic? Yeah, that a question A question on this point about uh, excessive speculation. Let's say somebody says, uh, I, I understand what you're saying and I, I, I believe it. However, it seems like we are in a, a different time, a, a special time. That is, Technological advance has uh, catapulted us into an age where so many things are possible now globally uh, in a digital age. Even the the weaponry available, uh, you know, it, it seems like this world can can end if somebody says something wrong or does something wrong or you get power in in, in the wrong person. So it seems that we are closer than ever. So is there anything wrong with saying, it sure seems like Christ is coming soon and I wanna live my life uh, with that in mind that uh, we're not long on this earth? Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question. And I agree that we live at a very unusual time. Um, and I, I certainly think technology is a very important part of it. Um, I might say, however, that I, I think that there were events in the past that were something like that. Now, you might question whether you could have the technology, obviously, but uh, I mean, for civilization to come apart. I mean, one of the reasons why we talk about the Middle Ages as being a time to kind of repair things. Uh, things that have happened is is because there was that uh, disintegration of civilization. I mean, if you think government is bad, try no government. Hmm. 
now, you know, we have AI now, we have uh, all kinds of extraordinary things, but I think back even in my own lifetime, Joe, and your lifetime as well, 1962, October, uh, probably America and the Soviet Union came closer than at any time to a thermonuclear exchange. Um, and, you know, you look at World War II and it's, I mean, the Holocaust. So I, I know that, uh, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with a person. I remember Robert Sosi, uh, Dr. Sosi, and I'm going to quote him and um, cite one of his books. He was one of my professors at Talbot School of Theology. He was a premillennialist, dispensational or progressive dispensational premillennialist taught there for more than 50 years at Talbot Biola's Graduate School in Theology. Uh, very devout man, deeply dedicated to scripture. Uh, and he asked me, he reviewed my book, Christian Endgame. I had him, I had Kim Riddlebogger, who is a leading advocate for all millennialism, uh, who was the pastor of a church I attended for many years. I had three Seventh-day Adventist scholars uh, look at the manuscript. Um, I had Hugh and Dave, uh, uh, Dave, Dave Rogstad, of course, our longtime uh, great friend and participant of our program. They all looked at it. So I had premillennialists, I had amillennialists, I had uh, a postmillennialist look at it. Um, I remember Dr. Sosi saying to me, Ken, uh, what's wrong with, uh, you know, and he says, I agree with you, you want to be careful, but is there anything wrong with a person saying, I wonder where we're at in, in this uh, plan of God? And I can't say that, um, you know, I, I, I can't say that the events we're living through now are not in some respects uh, concerning. I would, I would still simply say that um, I think we should be cautious I think we mm -hmm. should be cautious in that in that context. Mm -hmm. Okay, point number three. Um, evangelical Christians, in my opinion, should study the field when it comes to Christian eschatology because Christendom has been divided over the topic. Now, um, many Christians grow up in a evangelical context, and they're exposed maybe to one view. Uh, they they may be exposed only to a premillennial view and maybe even a particular type of premillennial view. And when they hear amillennialism, it's like, what in the world is that? Or postmillennialism, I can't believe anybody would hold that view. Or a type of preterism where certain prophecies are fulfilled already. They look at it like, what in the world is going on? Well, I, I think that uh, Christendom has uh, has been divided over this issue. Again, you've got four views. Uh, well, three basic views, and then there are some differences. For example, in premillennialism, you can be a historic premillennialist, or you can be a dispensational premillennialist. Mostly it has to do with the timing of the rapture, um, for the dispensationalists before the tribulation period as opposed to after the tribulation period. But you've got two views of premillennialism, and, and part of the differences have to do with how 
if there will be Old Testament practices uh, brought over into the millennial period, that would be a difference. But you also have two kind of different post-millennial views. And post-millennialism, and again, we'll talk more about these ideas in shows to come, but post-millennialism says that Christ will return after the millennium. There will be this long period, possibly a thousand years. Christianity will will reach the earth. Uh, the Great Commission will be completed. And uh, this period of, of Christian evangelism and mission will usher in the second coming of Christ. Well, you've got a Puritan version, and then you've got a theonomic version. And uh, they have lots in common, but there are some differences. Uh, John Jefferson Davis holds a Puritan view. Uh, a man named Gentry holds a theonomic view. So you've got diff some differences, uh, though mostly in agreement. And then you've got amillennialism. And um, the reason I suggest that we study the field is it's very easy to be taught one view and think that's what the Bible teaches when great Christian thinkers have held all kinds of different views about this. And um, I don't think there's anything unbiblical or unchristian about uh, asking ourselves, um, since this has been such a divisive topic, how can I be informed? How can I understand uh, the, the different viewpoints? So I had an interesting experience in my own education, Joe. Um, my initial um, eschatological views uh, were influenced, like my early Christianity was influenced by Walter Martin. I was kind of a Walter Martin clone. And uh, Walter was a premillennialist. He was a historic premillennialist rather than a dispensational premillennialist. But I thought, well, he's the Bible answer man. He's the sharpest Christian thinker I know. Uh, sounds pretty good to me. Um, so I adopted it. And then I went to do my undergraduate degree at Concordia University, Irvine, uh, a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Liberal Arts College here in Southern California. And of course, the Lutherans are Amil. So I spent my time there going back and forth with my professors about pre-mill and Amil. I learned about Amil. Then I went to Talbot's School of Theology, and that school affirms um, uh, premillennialism, a, a progressive dispensational premillennialism. And there I would uh, dialogue about amillennialism with, with them. And so in, in some respects, and, and then, of course, I had uh, friends like Greg Bonson, who was uh, theonomic, who, who held a postmillennial view. So I would go back and forth on all of these kinds of things. And um, sure, you could feel like, you know, you're kind of confused about it. But it was really out of all of that that I developed my idea that I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. And that is mere Christian eschatology. So studying the field is a good thing. Uh, having respect for different positions. And, and again, um, the men that I, men and women I have talked with who hold these different positions, they, they all are very, very devout uh, Christian people and uh, very dedicated uh, to, to God's word. So I think you should study the field. Uh, my fourth point, 
given the debates over eschatology throughout church history and the difficulty of interpreting the Bible's apocalyptic books like Daniel, like the book of Revelation, we should hold our views about the end times tentatively. Now, there I'm going to get some pushback. There people are going to disagree with me. Uh, some people are going to say, no, uh, the Bible clearly teaches premillennialism. Or the Bible clearly teaches amillennialism or postmillennialism. Um, I'm going to suggest that this is a difficult area. It's difficult, and again, we'll we'll spend more time talking about some of the challenges of understanding the prophetic literature of the Bible. But when you have apocalyptic literature, you have lots of symbolism, and so Christian thinkers uh, have held differing positions. Um, it's sometimes difficult to know how those passages that are uh, more symbolic are to be interpreted in light of the more straightforward passages. So I would propose that maybe a little tentative nature, and, and tentative doesn't mean that you don't hold that view, but it does mean that you are aware of the other views and you are aware of the challenges of this particular area. Now, let me give you one of my biases. Um, I think it's a strength, but some people will think it's a bias. I grab, I almost always gravitate toward what can bring Christians together. So when I talk with Christians of different denominations or different branches of Christendom, I wanna talk about truth, but I also wanna talk about unity and I also want to endeavor to be as charitable as I can, although uh, that third part of being charitable, I haven't always succeeded. Um, Christians are forgiven sinners, and sanctification is a very long and challenging process, and so I need work in being uh, a Christian who will convey truth, promote unity, and act charitably, but that, that is my bias. Um, my tendency, Joe, is when I look at the differences in Christendom, what strikes me more is what we have in common. Now, mm -hmm. some people would disagree. Some people look at the differences, let's say, between Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism, and they say, no, what I see is the profound differences. But I'm, I want to convey my bias. My bias is I move toward unity. I think that's one reason I love the creeds so much, because there's such an emphasis upon kind of uh, classical or uh, Catholicity, not Catholicism, but Catholicity, meaning what we all share in common. And that's that point in, in number four. Comment or response, Joe, uh, regarding uh, that? Yeah, kind of a kind of a question on, on this point about holding our views about the end times tentatively. Let's say somebody says, you know what, I've been engaging with skeptics of the Christian faith and I put forth my views with confidence, uh, including end times views, because I don't think one should be tentative that Christ is going to return. Uh, I, I may not know when, but I can point that skeptic to things happening around the globe. And given my view of, of end times eschatology, I can say, look, this aligns with the scriptures and upholds what uh, 
what the scriptures predicted so so long ago. So this person, uh, hopefully I'm getting the position right, I don't want to get it wrong, might say, why hold it tentatively? Why not hold it confidently? You see what I'm getting at, Ken? Yeah, I think so. Well, let, let me react to it. Um, I certainly think one should hold very strongly to the second coming of Christ. It's not only a biblical truth, it is also a creedal truth. It is part of uh, classical Christianity. Um, and yet I think the timing, um, things surrounding that age, the things that will lead up to it, I don't think that those are essential. Um, I, I think that's where I want to show caution, not about the second coming. I think that's a sure thing. I think that's a clear teaching of uh, what it means to be a Christian, that the Lord will come again. But the events surrounding it and uh, how the apocalyptic scripture are to be understood. Now, I, I certainly agree that I think some approaches are more responsible than other approaches. And I, I've already admitted, I think we can be sloppy in this issue. But where I'd want the caution to be is about these secondary events. Because as you're talking to non-Christian people, and um, again, I, I was at a church. Uh, it was New Year's Eve, 1979. I was uh, at a very large church, a Pentecostal charismatic church in Anaheim called Melody Land. And a leading evangelical in the area of eschatology predicted, and I heard him with my own ears, the Lord will come in the 80s. Well, the 80s have come and gone. Um, I think there's too much of that. I think there's too much of that. I'm not asking them, Joe, to be tentative about the truth of the faith. I'm asking them to be cautious about some of the uh, areas of division. Uh, and, and again, um, some of the great teachers of Christendom have held different views of the millennium. Some have held amillennialism, some have held postmillennialism, some have held premillennialism. So that's what I'm asking to be to be tentative. It's hard to have any dialogue if you don't have any kind of tentative view or respect that other people might hold the view. And I think my education was a good thing for me. It taught me, wow. There really are differences uh, among these very authentic Christian professors that I had. Okay, point number five. Um, eschatology is one of the most, can I underscore most, divisive areas within Christian theology. The most divisive area within Christian theology. Therefore, there is a genuine need to treat Christians who hold different views than we do with respect and charity. Now, now again, I can understand maybe somebody who says, well, you know, I don't agree with Ken. Um, I think if you don't, you know, if you're not amillennial, if you hold some crazy idea like premillennialism or postmillennialism, you're out to lunch. Well, um, I'm sure people, there are people who do, who would say something like that, but this is a very divisive area, uh, maybe the most divisive area. In fact, let me quote Donald Bloch here. 
He has a very helpful book. I'm going to recommend this book as a general eschatology book, not necessarily a book that's going to drive you toward a particular millennial perspective. But Donald Bloch says this. He says that eschatology, perhaps more than any other branch of theology, is laden with divisiveness. And this is particularly true in conservative evangelical circles. Um, again, you could, you know, you could identify it as my bias, but I think there's way too much division in the body of Christ. Uh, look, if Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox can't agree, then could two different Lutheran churches denominations agree? Could do we need four or five different Reformed denominations? Um, do we need multiple non-denominational churches? Could there be some unity there? Um, no doubt my interest in eschatology is, number one, apologetic, because I, I think when we do it sloppily, um, we hurt evangelism. But I also think that it can hurt our unity. Now, now notice that when I talk about truth, unity, and charity— Truth has got to trump unity. Um, that's just the way it is. Uh, mm -hmm. You can be unified to something that's not true, and that's not going to do anybody any good. But that charity, you can have truth, but if you don't have charity, you're in trouble, says the Apostle Paul. So I, I think that since this is such an area of division, um, I look at the Nicene Creed, I look at the Apostles' Creed, and I think, man, these are creeds I said when I was in the Lutheran church. Now I'm saying them when I'm in a, an Anglican church. I said them when I was a Catholic. I tend to gravitate toward, man, this is, there's a mere Christianity here that I think is very important. But even if you don't agree with that, even if you think that there is one right view about eschatology, um, I think that the d divisive nature of it is is not healthy for the church so that that's my that's my uh my fifth point and let me develop it a little bit here is a, a famous quotation i know you've seen this quotation before joe uh it's a famous quotation it reads in essentials unity in non-essentials liberty in all things charity in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. It sounds like something St. Augustine would say, but it was, was not said by him. It comes from a 17th century Lutheran theologian named Rupertus Melendius. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Um, Joe, I spent some time on Twitter talking with non-Christians. In fact, on my vacation, I uh, didn't follow my my uh, advice from my wife. I spent three hours talking to about 12 atheists on Twitter. And uh, at the end, I had a headache and anxiety to, uh, <laughs> to take away from it. But um, I, I realized that... Um, one of the things that non-Christians object to, and now, now granted, some, some atheists, I think, are more open-minded than others, just like some Christians, I think, are more open-minded or charitable than others. But um, 
some atheists make a real point that you know Christians can't agree, and that's a good reason to think it's false. And sometimes they have ammunition. Sometimes we give them ammunition. Mm -hmm. So that's a consideration. And essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and all things charity. Of course, now you can challenge that. You could ask the question, well, Ken, is it possible that we don't agree as to what's essential? Well, that's a really, really good question. Um, you know, I'm a creedal guy. I love the creeds. Somebody might say, but Ken, I, I also love the creeds, but the creed doesn't say everything that we want to say. The creed doesn't address, for example, whether the scripture is the final authority or whether the church tradition is to be part of that authority. Uh, the creeds also don't deliberately and distinctively tell us the exact relationship between grace, faith, and works in salvation. So I have to concede some of that. Uh, there may be other things that we draw from Scripture that are not explicitly taught in the creeds, but I would again say maybe that's something we can learn from the past. I, I think part of the brilliance of the creeds and by the way, I think the reason why the creeds have been so successful is because they are so deeply biblical. But I would also say, I think the fathers of the church, uh, East and West, had an awareness of uh, essential and that there are areas that maybe are less essential or non-essential. And then, of course, there's a problem we all have, and that problem is being charitable. Um, and I will just come out and say it. I think that guys like you and me, Joe, who are very cerebral, who read books and love to talk about ideas and love to engage with non-Christian worldviews and go back and forth. I mean, both you and I have worked here at Reasons to Believe, an apologetic science faith organization. Both of you, both you and I have been here for more than 20 years. Um, but I think we both would agree, and if you differ, tell me, that love is a very critical component in the non-Christians need to observe it in the Christian life. And I think part of being charitable is, uh, is recognizing that this is a challenging area, and even if I hold my views very strongly, I could, I could easily uh, fall into divisiveness and uh, a lack of a lack of charity. Uh, now, um, I want to pause there. I have some more points that I want to make in the next program, but I want to talk about some really good books. I want to I want this uh, series. Uh, to be punctuated with good books from all the different points of view. So, Joe, I want to recommend a few books, and I, I hope I'm not being self-aggrandizing by saying I think my little book, Christian Endgame, and, and again, by the way, that was the first RT, RTB Press book. It was mm. the first one. It's only 88 pages. I don't take a definitive view. I I try to, I, whenever there are major divisions, I try to talk about what I think are both the strengths and weaknesses. And um, 
I try to follow what we do here on Clear Thinking, where we talk about not telling people what to believe, but helping them uh, to think through the different positions. So if you're new to eschatology, if eschatology is kind of confusing or you're not a, you haven't been exposed broadly, that's a very, uh, you know, it's a primer. It, it, I tried to write it clearly. It's an introductory type of, of book. But there are some other really good books uh, that are available. And again, I want to make people uh, aware of them. Here are two good books that I'm going to call General Studies in Eschatology. Uh, one of them is by Miller J. Erickson. Erickson uh, is a Baptist theologian, uh, solidly evangelical. Um, he has a book entitled a basic guide to eschatology, a basic guide to eschatology. That, that's a really good place to begin. Then Donald Bloch has a book entitled The Last Things, The Last Things. That book is also a book that will introduce these basic ideas. And um, uh, I, I think that's a, that's a great way to recognize that Eschatology is one branch of theology. You know, we, we talk about biblical theology. We talk about soteriology, which relates to salvation. We talk about uh, theology proper, the nature of God, the nature of the Trinity. We talk about ecclesiology, coming from the Greek word uh, for church, ecclesia, um, and we talk about eschatology, the study of the last things. And uh, so a good introduction to that uh, can be found, um, I think, in my book, along with the book by Erickson and uh, by Donald Bloch as well. Wonderful. All right. Thank you for those recommendations. And I will uh, attest to the usefulness, the helpfulness of your book, Christian Endgame, especially for someone who's not uh, entirely aware of other views. You do a great job of introducing those. So an easy read, you'll go right through it and you'll, you'll be glad you read it. So Christian Endgame by Kenneth Samples. All right, that is going to wrap it up for this podcast. Let us know your comments and questions. You can reach out to Ken at Twitter. That's at RTB underscore K samples. And we'll be glad to read your comment or question here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at Reasons.org.